Marcus Freeman was able to answer a lot of questions in his first year as head coach, but going into year two, plenty of questions remain. Can he be an elite recruiter in the NIL era? Is the staff turnover ultimately going to be a net positive or a negative? All that and more coming up next. You are Locked On Irish, your daily podcast on the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up and welcome to Locked On Irish. It is Thursday, June 1st, and thank you for making this your first listen of the day. As always, you can watch the show on YouTube or listen wherever you get your podcast. But whether you're watching or listening, please subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. The YouTube channel is actually getting close to 1,000 subscribers, and to be honest, that was the goal I wanted to reach by the start of the season come August. But thanks to your support, it looks like we might hit that number well before then. So thank you to everyone who has subscribed already and continues to tune in each and every day. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. My name is Tyler Wojcik, and I'm the host. I'm a Notre Dame alum and have been podcasting about the football team since 2020. I've also been covering college football as a producer since 2018, first for ESPN and now at the Fox Sports headquarters in L.A. This episode is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sportsbook of Locked On. Make every moment more. Visit FanDuel.com slash Locked On today to get started. And in today's episode, I'll be joined by Luke Smith, my good friend and former co-host on a little podcast you might know called Sons of Saturday. So we can discuss Marcus Freeman's development as ag coach now that he's got a full year under his belt. And we'll also get into where we think the program is headed under his direction. Freeman is still somewhat in the honeymoon period despite his 9-5 record as head coach, but we're both still big believers in Freeman and what he can accomplish at Notre Dame but we also recognize the task ahead and the challenges that lie ahead for him. So let's get right into it. Let's talk to Luke. All right, Luke Smith is here. And Luke, there's a bunch of different things I want to get to today. But I want to start this conversation by pointing out the simple fact that it's June. The reason I bring that up is because there isn't a whole lot going on in the college football world during the month of June, with the exception of it being an important month for recruiting. With that means it's it's also that time of year where Notre Dame fans get really angsty and question how this next wave of talent will close the gap between the Irish and the teams at the mountaintop of college football. So with that in mind, what's your perspective on the state of Notre Dame's recruiting under Marcus Freeman? I think it's been good, right? Um, Is it to the level that a lot of people expected, perhaps unfairly? Probably not right now. But um, to what you just said, because it's June, I'm not that concerned about it. There's a lot of things that can happen this month. I would actually expect Notre Dame to get a number of commitments by the time June comes to a close and then we're going into the 4th of July. So I'm not too you know, worried about it. On the defensive side of the ball specifically, I do have a couple questions about what they might be doing there. But as a whole, like I really like what they've done with receivers. Obviously, you have C.J. Carcelnan at quarterback. Um, we'll see what they do at quarterback. And the next couple classes, but they got Kenny Minchie in this last class too. So like, I'm, I don't know. I'm just, I'm not worried about it, but you're right. When there's nothing else really going on, um, there's a lot of time for, I don't know if self-reflection is the right word, but reflection is the word. And uh, that can go into a number of different directions. Yeah. So I want to get to your questions you have for defensive recruiting, but something I was thinking about is like, think about where we were at this point last year. Notre Dame looked like they were in great position to get Dante Moore. Uh, Keon Keeley was still committed. Peyton Bowen was still committed. So Notre Dame was in the running and had some of those top guys secured in the class. Now, obviously, none of those guys ended up committing today. And I wonder, like, 
How different would the conversation about Notre Dame recruiting be today if Notre Dame had never been in that position in the first place? Like, say, last year, those guys, uh, Peyton Bowen and Keon Keeley, had never committed to Notre Dame, and they were just sort of in the mix. And same with Dante Moore, and then all of those guys ended up committing elsewhere. Do you think that would have changed the conversation at all? Because the fact that Notre Dame was so close, and we had those high expectations with Freeman, and then it didn't work out, like we had a taste of it, and then it didn't work out how we wanted, I think that drastically changed how people look at Notre Dame recruiting especially now this year when Notre Dame doesn't have as much momentum with some of those top guys. It's definitely different. I think especially when it comes to um, Keeley and and probably more. I mean, the Bowen thing was just weird. I, I think everybody, even people who are probably a little bit over-exuberant about these sort of things, understand that that was just a really bizarre recruitment that I don't think anybody could have known where that was going to go. Um, the Keeley thing, though, and, and the more thing, I think there's a lot of there's been a lot of reporting out there that that was driven by NIL and and some people in their circles who were thinking for themselves and, and maybe not necessarily the kids. So I, I get why people would be bothered about that. And if those had worked out another name's favor, then yeah, sure. I'm like, I'm sure the conversation will be different. Just like the conversation about Marcus Freeman as a coach would probably be different if they didn't lose to freaking Marshall and Stanford last year too. So like, you know, if, yes, if that happened, I think that it would be different. Yeah. And I think some of that is fair. And you bring up NIL and when Marcus Freeman was hired to be the head coach, the expectation was that he would elevate Notre Dame's recruiting operation because he had proven to be an extremely effective recruiter throughout his career up to that point. I mean, that was on display from the moment he was hired to be the defensive coordinator back in 2021 because he was able to land six commitments from four- and five-star players before Notre Dame even held their first practice in fall camp. Now, obviously, recruiting has, has changed quite a bit since then with the dawn of NIL. So are you concerned that one of Freeman's best attributes, maybe his best attribute, has been severely diminished because of Notre Dame's approach to NIL. I don't want to say severely diminished. I think it's a challenge. Um, but I, I am still at a point where I would like to see this play out a little bit more and, and we have a little bit more of a larger sample size for determining that whatever is going on in NIL is just going to eradicate his prowess as, as a recruiter. and Not eradicate, but just diminish his ability because I really don't think that's the case. I think there's extraordinary circumstances in, in you know, every class, but I'm not willing to go there yet. Um, and I know some people probably are, but I'm just really not. It's too early to say that. I think that perhaps, you know, other challenges are just like convincing a kid that, hey, yeah, you should live in South Bend for four years. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think that that's something that Brian Kelly learned early on, too, that that's not the easiest sell job either. Uh, and that might be a bigger thing than whatever's going on in NIL at other institutions. Yeah, this is something that you and I have talked plenty about before, where once NIL came in, it just was like the automatic cop-out every time Notre Dame didn't get a recruit. It's like, guys, Notre Dame has had challenges for a long time before this, and it's not even just the South Bend thing. It's the, you have to go to class, you have to stay eligible, and if you don't stay eligible, you will be kicked out of the school, which Notre Dame has dealt with in the past with some key players, uh, including one Everett Golson. Plus, you've got to live in a dorm, and you could be six foot four, 300 pounds, and you're going to be living with a random roommate your freshman year. So all of those things still matter. So even when Notre Dame doesn't get these separate recruits, like the Dante Moore thing, I think that was very clearly driven by NIL. With Keon Keeley, I think it was part NIL, part the fact that Alabama just churns out first-round draft picks on the defensive line year in and year out. And then Peyton Bowen, I, <laughs> I throw my hands up with that one. NIL was probably a part of that, but his recruitment was so insane. I really don't know what to make of it. But then this year, 
Notre Dame is in the running for two five-stars at this point. They've already got Cam Williams uh, committed, who's a five-star, and C.J. Carr is about as close to a five-star as you can get. But with Justin Scott and Elijah Rushing, how will their decisions impact your overall view of how Freeman is able to recruit at Notre Dame? Yeah, and before I answer that, I also want to say that I think Notre Dame is in a much better position or or has a better grasp on NIL than they did a year ago when these events with Moore and Keeley were happening, too. I mean, you just saw that it's pretty much a, a university-sanctioned thing, what Brady Quinn and Fund are doing now. And you look at the guys that are on that board, like it's some pretty impressive Notre Dame alums are on that. And I think they did pretty much what we said a year ago. They're going to take their time to figure this out. But I think once they figure it out, they're going to do some pretty good things with it. And, and I think that that's another important thing there is that I just think Notre Dame's in a lot better position today than they were a year ago. And and that shouldn't be such a big you know detriment or, or obstacle. As to your question, um, it's an in, it, it's an interesting one because I've kind of I don't know if I've been on record, but I've definitely said this to people. I think Justin Scott's pretty overrated, to be honest with you. Um, I, I don't think he's a five star talent. He he probably has the potential to be, but I also think we're kidding ourselves if we tell ourselves that he's going to Notre Dame. Um, this kid, it, like if you just look at everything about his visit taking and or lack thereof is just red flag after red flag. Okay. Yeah. I mean, saying I can't go to Notre Dame because I can't get out of my Starbucks shift when you live <laughs> 90 minutes to Notre Dame. And then also not scheduling an official visit with Notre Dame, but doing it with all these other schools. And I've heard people say, well, you know, he could just do an unofficial because it's so easy. Well, then why isn't he doing that? The kid's not going to Notre Dame. He's not. And I, and I think you're an idiot if you believe he is. <laughs> That's strong, but I think I, I do I do see your point there. And I remember last year when Keon Keeley, when we first started to get word that he might be wavering a little bit, someone on the message boards pointed out, hey, look at his Twitter likes. And I thought that was kind of ridiculous. But sometimes the message boards, they get things right. So I looked at Keon Keeley's likes on Twitter, and every single one was about Alabama like playing for Nick Saban he's the best coach I'm like ooh, wait he might actually be reconsidering his commitment to Notre Dame and that turned out to be right if you look at Justin Scott's Twitter I think he occasionally has retweeted some stuff about that's like pro Notre Dame but most of it is pretty pro Miami and him getting excited and communicating with other Miami commits so I'm with you I, I don't think it's looking good for Notre Dame but rushing is a different story I think rushing or Notre Dame is actually in a better place with rushing which is kind of insane to me but it does seem like that they are I, I would agree. Uh, and the last thing on Scott, like just this whole stringing along, it's like the girl that you like think you're dating, but you're not really. She's like, well, yeah, like we're, we're together, but also like, I, I don't want that out there publicly. Like the kid's not coming <laughs> to Notre Dame. Okay. He's just not, but yes, as for rushing. So that's a different opinion. I, Cause I agree with you. I, I did not really think Notre Dame had much of a shot with him um, earlier on when they were started to recruit him, but it, it seems like they've done a pretty good job and, and there's still a fighting chance there. In this instance, if they land him, that's obviously outstanding. And I do think he's a very, very good player. If they don't, I kind of feel like it's a you didn't lose anything there situation. Like, like he's from Arizona, correct? Yep. From Arizona. His like, dad played a he's Florida. He's got Florida ties. Like, if you lose out on that guy, it's really not that big a deal as far as I see it. But I think the, the fact that Notre Dame's made this as close as they have is, is very interesting. And obviously I'd be ecstatic if they land him because I do think he's a difference maker, but this is something like if they don't land him, um, I, that's not going to sway my opinion. I, I totally do understand why people would be swayed if they don't land Scott, because 
whatever, St. Ignatius kid from Chicago. But if you just look at all the signs, like the writing is on the wall. He's not coming. Right. And and I understand your point about the signs, but I think if you look at it, like if he goes to Miami, it's pretty clearly it's pretty clear why he's going. He's going because of NIL. But let's go back to your you said you have some questions about defensive recruiting. They're obviously going for some big fish in these two guys that we're just talking about. A lot of the other guys are projects. Logan Thomas was a big commit, and I don't want to undersell that because not only is a top two is he a top two hundred player now, I think he's gonna keep going up in the recruiting rankings. He plays Viper. Um, Notre Dame has not been able to recruit that position particularly well in recent years. So that's good. But there's a bunch of other sort of questionable commitments like Kennedy Erlacher. I know the last name, but it doesn't really make a ton of sense to me. So what what kind of concerns you about defensive recruiting at this point in time? I guess it would be, well, it's, it's a couple of things. One, it is some of those takes like with Erlacher and then, you know, Teddy Rezac from Nebraska. She's like, what? This is interesting. I'm not totally sure what we're doing here. I, I think that there probably also would be, and there has been some gripes about that, but there'd probably be even more if Notre Dame hadn't had such strong back-to-back linebacker classes prior to this coming one. Um, so there's probably a little bit of wiggle room there. But like the other thing that I think is interesting that doesn't line up is that maybe like you could say, you know what, they're just looking to stockpile as many guys as possible. But Depending on who you listen to about what happened with Owen Wafel, that's not the case. They processed him, whatever that means. So obviously that's a matter of what you believe there. I am of the belief that just bring in as many of these guys as you can because you need that. I mean, we've said this for five years. It's it's always been a depth thing with Notre Dame, right? That they don't have that those second and third line guys. Like we can go back to the Julian Love example 20 times over. When somebody goes out, they're just a little bit screwed. Um, so I, I don't like understand Vaughn. why you, Remember his dad hit you up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. He said something about like, ain't no crying in South Memphis or something like that. I, I don't know. But yes, uh, um, that's the point though, right? Like I think yeah. you should want to stockpile and just some of the guys they're in on, especially at linebacker, I'm just not that sure what they're doing there. But then also I think they have some questions at safety now, right? Because there is Paul Menke, who I think is kind of close to a commitment but I think that that was going to happen before they realized that Bronte Johnson was an option again, uh, because there were long rumors that he was not going to probably academically qualify. Now he's back on their board and those guys are both visiting this weekend. So I know they also like Gallegos a lot too at safety. So what I would say is take them all, take as many as you can. Right. But I don't know if that's how it's going to be. Yeah. On one hand, it would make sense if you're like, all right, these guys want to come to Notre Dame. We think that in a couple of years, They'll be good players at the college level, so let's take them now. Then the Wayful thing just totally, I, I guess, readjusted um, my belief or my understanding of the approach to the class because I'm with you, and I think some people misinterpreted what I was saying in yesterday's episode where I was like, I don't understand why Notre Dame would move on from Owen Wayful for Sean Seviano. I wasn't even saying that Seviano isn't even going to be a good player. I think he could be. My point was, why substitute one for the other? Just take them both. Take them all in because Notre Dame experienced a lot of roster turnover this offseason. It's going to continue to happen, not just for Notre Dame, but for literally every single team in college football from here on out. So I agree. I think they should take as many guys as they can. I guess... If I was trying to be optimistic and seeing things like, all right, maybe Notre Dame just wants to get as many guys as they they can get committed now and then go for the big fish and then maybe round out the class at the end. But I'm not really sure. And outside of Scott and Rushing, I mean, you mentioned Gallegos. I'm not sure how that approach is going to work out at the end because they've got a lot of guys committed already, especially on defense. And 
it's it's just surprising to me, especially considering what Marcus Freeman has done since he came to Notre Dame, especially on the defensive side of the ball. It's weird to see the defensive side of the ball sort of slacking behind a little bit. Yeah, it's lacking star power. Um, and like that's I mean, that was not a pun intended, but I guess it kind of plays that way. Like you have a lot of kind of three star guys there, some low four stars. Um I it also does sound like maybe they're back in on Caleb Beasley now, which would be a really good pickup for them in, in the defensive backfield. But you're right. It just seems different from what Freeman had done the last few years on the defensive side of the ball. And obviously Al Golden's involved there too, but I don't know. I just, I would like to understand a little bit more about what their evaluation process looks like there. I know that they've talked a little bit about on defense getting longer or, or the defensive line specifically longer and, and bigger, but what else is going into this? Cause some of these just don't really, don't really compute, but then again, I don't know anything, but I'm just, I'm just, I don't know. It's not obvious to me what they're doing, I guess is the takeaway. Yeah. Last point I want to make on recruiting. We've talked a lot about the defense. We're almost forgetting just how good of a class uh, is on offense right now. Like imagine if CJ Carr and Cam Williams committed this week, the conversation about Notre Dame recruiting would be entirely different, but the fact that they committed uh, over. And then ES Williams. I mean, like think about how good that guy is too. Like, so yes, totally. They've got a near five-star quarterback and ES Williams. They're they're in good shape to add young, the running back out of Texas. That would be great. The receiver class looks great coming off a, coming off a class in the previous year that was loaded at wide receiver. So, when you look at it in totality, I don't think it's as bad as some people are saying, but I do think it's fair to be concerned, especially on the defensive side. Yeah, definitely. And and like like you said, it is only June, so we'll see how these things shake out. We could be having a totally different conversation 30 days from now. Make a fast break to FanDuel during the NBA playoffs because right now, new customers can get a no-sweat first bet up to $2,500. That's $2,500 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Personally, my favorite part about FanDuel is the instant payouts. It's such a smooth process, especially compared to some of the other sites out there. So if you haven't tried it yet, trust me, you don't want to wait any longer. That's because there's no better place to bet all the playoff action than America's number one sportsbook. Visit FanDuel.com slash LockedOn and get a no-sweat first bet up to $2,500. That's Fandle.com slash locked on. Fandle, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. Going into year two, uh, Marcus Freeman has assembled a coaching staff that is made up almost entirely of his guys. And not just guys who he hired personally, but coaches who are similar to him in terms of personality and coaching style, plus guys who he has a long history with, like Jared Parker and Gino Gadulli. And I feel like there's two ways of looking at it. The glass half full approach would be that Freeman is going to do a lot better with the guys who he handpicked himself. Now, the counter to that would be Freeman was hired with the idea that he would keep a lot of the same staff um, that had so much success under Brian Kelly. And almost all of those guys are gone now with the exception of Chris O'Leary and Mike Mickens and Mike Mickens and Freeman obviously have a history together as well. So what's your perspective on the staff that Freeman has put together? Well, man, I would really love to be able to pull this up really quickly, but I just thought about when kind of they were in that 11th hour of hiring Freeman, there was a Matt Fortuna article like when all those guys were going to stay. Right. And there was a quote that said something along the lines of like, there's a belief among the coaching staff, particularly with the younger guys that this roster is poised to win a national title now. And just like needs like a new voice head coach. Well, I I don't know how much all those guys believe that because they're pretty much all gone, but that, that was a pretty funny tweet or quote in retrospect as to how I feel about the current coaching staff though. Um, I mean, everybody felt like that offensive coordinator hire left a lot to be desired just because of what the optics of all that looked like. But I I think that 
Jared Parker is going to be just fine this year as long as Sam Hartman's healthy. So I'm not too concerned about that right now. Um, and I do think that the addition of Gino Gadouli and just having a designated quarterbacks coach who's not calling the plays, like that's going to pay dividends. We haven't had that since 2018, right? Or 20, well, 2019, I guess, but really when 2018. When was the quarterback coach and Long yeah, was and the think OC, of, yeah. Yes, and think about what you saw with Ian Buck in that 2018 season when he just kind of was able to just soak in everything from Reese. I mean, he came kind of from like an afterthought to a guy that led a team to a college football playoff. So I, I think that that's going to be really interesting to see how that works, not only for Sam Hartman, but, you know, Kenny Minchie and Steve Angeli as well. Um, I, I feel like I'm pretty content with the staff right now. Now that could change after three games, but like there's no glaring, you know, questions for me. I know some people have questions about Chris O'Leary, but we'll see how that one plays out. I, I, there's just nothing that really worries me right now. Yeah. I think this goes back to your point at the beginning when you said it's June, it's a time where people are doing a lot of reflection and self-reflection. So I think this goes back to a lot of the sentiments when, when Freeman was hired and you look at all the roster or not only roster turnover, but staff turnover that's happened in the time since. It's kind of jarring when you're like, wow, all these guys left. But when you look at it on a case-by-case basis, pretty much every single move makes sense. Like Lance Taylor, of course, like he left to become the OC at Louisville, and now he's the head coach at Western Michigan. Mike Elson, that one was weird, but then again, he had been passed over as the defensive coordinator so many times by that point. He probably realized he reached the ceiling in Notre Dame and probably didn't love the fact that he was going to be working for the guy who passed him over. And then, you know, like John McNulty going to Boston College to be an OC. Like, all of that made sense. So I think that when you look at it individually, it's not nearly as bad as when you look from, like, a 30,000-foot view and be like, wait, all these coaches are leaving Freeman? Is he good to work with? Like, do they believe in him or not? I think that... Those concerns are a little bit premature. We're going to have to see how these guys do over the course of this year and next year as well. The other point I'd like to make there is that if you look across the country, really the only program that's like that's exceeded expectations has really been at the top of the sport that has had sustained continuity is Clemson. Uh, and I think that that even that ended up biting them in the ass last year, right? With Brandon Streeter as their OC. And frankly, I think you can make the argument that the reason that worked as long as it did was because they had guys named Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence. I mean, look at what those Clemson offensive coordinators have done since they've left and gotten head coaching jobs. They've pretty much all been fired or Tony Elliott had a rough first year. Obviously, Brent Venables was an outstanding defensive quarterback or sorry, defensive coordinator. But you look at the offensive side of the ball like that's really the only program that's had that sort of continuity. And I think that that was more being bailed out by two generational quarterbacks than anything. Yeah, and the way I look at it at this point is I think winning is going to cure everything. Mm-hmm. Like, if Notre Dame goes, hell, even 10-2, and 11-1 this season, I think that that is going to make us, you know, reconsider a lot of our concerns about Freeman, about the program. And I also think he's just going to be able to recruit better. Like, Notre Dame had been good, obviously, before Freeman was hired, but I think it's a little bit different when the guy who's recruiting these players, like, he wasn't entirely responsible for that success. He was a part of it, but... Brian Kelly was the head coach during a lot of those wins. And then last year, they have the loss to Marshall. They have the loss to Stanford. The win against Clemson certainly helped, um, and it helped sort of revitalize some hope for what Freeman could do, especially in big games, because we have not seen Notre Dame dominate in a big game like that in a really long time. Obviously, Clemson wasn't as good as we thought in the moment, but still, huge win, huge win for the program and uh, what it means going forward. So this year, 
Do you think that there's added pressure on Freeman? Like, obviously, there's going to be pressure on every Notre Dame head coach to win every single year. Do you think that there's even more pressure on Freeman this year, given the roster, given the talent that's out there, and how crucial winning will be to the future of the program, not just in terms of, like, the reputation, but also how it's going to impact recruiting and everything that comes along with that? I sort of thought he might have been swallowed by all of that last year after losing to Marshall and Stanford, but obviously there were some extreme cases, but I felt like for the most part, the fan base gave him a lot of room to grow. Um, and I'm just, I'm not really sure how I expect that to play out this year, because I think you would naturally expect that. All right, we've given you your time. It's time to go now. But just when you see the way that a lot of this fan base interacts with Freeman and talks about him, there isn't that level um, of pressure. Now, I also remember going into Brian Kelly's second year, where obviously the end of his first year, they had ripped off, what, four or five wins in a row with Tommy Reese, his quarterback. They're coming in with a healthy Dane Christ, and everybody was like, this team's a BCS team or bust, basically, and people were pretty high on Brian Kelly. Then that South Florida game happened, uh, game one, and things changed real quick. So, really, that Jonas Gray fumble is when it yeah, all just flipped. yeah. <laughs> So I guess like if something like that happens, like, okay, on September 9th, there's a noon game in Raleigh, North Carolina. If Brennan Armstrong gets Notre Dame, things are going to change pretty quickly. If, you know, if things spiral out of control before they even get to Ohio State, then we have some problems on our hands. Definitely. And those first three games, Notre Dame has to start 3-0. Because a loss to Ohio State at home is forgivable, but you can't be losing these games to four. Really, first four. Opponents. First four. They play four before Ohio State. Yeah. So as we look ahead to this season, something that has been sort of in my mind lately is like when Marcus Freeman was hired, everyone recognized. Everyone could point to the fact that he was a first-year head coach and say, okay, he's probably going to need some time. And then it's only been a year <laughs> And now, even though people are still like, yeah, he needs some time, it's kind of like it, we can't look at it as this year or bust. And I think there is some added pressure. I think that winning would go a long way this year, maybe even more than most years, because if he's able to show real growth as a head coach and in terms of development and all that, like looking beyond recruiting and all that, just getting wins on Saturdays is everything in this business. So if he's able to show that he can do that in his second year, that's going to go a really long way. But if it doesn't work out, if Notre Dame does go nine and three, if they lose to all the you know the big games against USC, Ohio State, Clemson, uh, and teams like that, if he still needs some time to grow, I think we as a fan base and hopefully the university will give him some time to grow because even though there was these really high expectations, especially as a recruiter, that he would come in and elevate everything right away, it just takes time. Like he's a first year head coach, and I think he's gonna be growing on the job for quite some time. Now, hopefully it's not that steep of a learning curve, but I think that we got to give him some room. And even if it doesn't go as great as we want it to go this year, I, I'm still not going to be out on him as head coach when the year is over, unless they go like seven and five, obviously. <laughs> let's let's not even talk about that. Yeah. But yes, so I, I agree with your sentiment. Either. Yeah. yeah. Like, what do you think is like fair expectations for Notre Dame this year? We don't have to do like a season preview, give me a record, but like, what are some things that you'd like to see that would indicate real growth to you uh, for Freeman as a head coach? I think that you get at least two or three of those big three games, so those big three being Ohio State, Clemson, and USC, 
and you don't have any just stupid losses. And and even if it's one of three and you're really competitive in all three, like, I don't know, you beat Ohio State, you lose a tight one to Caleb Williams, then you lose a tight one on the road to Clemson. Okay. But you don't have any of those just duds like Stanford, even Cal last year. Like, there's just none of those duds, or you just find a way to win them. Um, I think that that would show a, a marked improvement. You bring up that Cal game. This is something I see on message board. I'm going to go completely sidetrack here. Was that the worst win Notre Dame has ever had? Um, honestly, there's some bad ones. Like I, I saw that thread as well. I sneak. Honestly, I was kind of surprised that nobody really brought up Virginia Tech 2021 because that one was pretty bad too. Um, like they had that no business winning that game either. Toledo was obviously horrible. Virginia Tech 2019 was horrible. Like there's some bad ones, but th- what I will say about Cal is that there was a point in that first half where I just like left my seat and was walking around the concourse and ran into somebody I knew and like I really didn't think they were going to get another first down the rest of the season. That's how bad. It was. <laughs> Like it was that bad. Maybe all this conversation about the like the well, the Marshall game wasn't Drew Pine's fault, but the Stanford game and just how anemic the offense looked at different points last year. Could we we could honestly one approach could be like it was all Drew Pine. Like you could literally blame I'm okay it all with him. that approach. I'm okay with that approach. <laughs> I, I, I figured you might be. Um, but look, we're running out of time. There's more stuff I want to get to, but we will have to fix the Notre Dame football program uh, on another day. So thanks for coming on, Luca. We'll do it again soon. All right. Sounds good. All right. That'll do it for this episode of Locked On Irish. Thanks again to Luke. And thank you for making this your first listen of the day. For the everydayers out there, be sure to tune in to tomorrow's episode for another Flashback Friday style list. I've got some different ideas that I think will be fun and potentially polarizing. So be on the lookout for that tomorrow. On your way out, remember to subscribe to the show on YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcast. And give us a follow on Twitter at Locked On Irish, on Instagram at Locked On Irish Pod, and my personal Twitter account at Tyler Wojcik. That's at Tyler W O J C I A K. I'll see you guys tomorrow.